Amen. What an amazing reminder for us here today. Well, it's me again. I'm Peter. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Jericho Road Church. I got to say, it's just good to be here today. I am so grateful that each and every single one of you are here today. I'm excited. I'm excited to share with you. I'm excited for what God has in store for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right into it. God, we thank you again just for this amazing opportunity that we have to be here. We thank you for the privilege we have to worship. We thank you for every person that was able to make it. And we just, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be here today, that you would really open up our ears, but more importantly, that you would open up our hearts so that we could hear your word, we could be transformed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, like we saw in that video, certainly this world is full of change. Things are changing all around us. I know me as an individual, I'm changing. In fact, I had this conversation with my wife just the other day. I asked her, you know, we've known each other for a really long time now. How have I changed over the years? Since you first met me or since we first started dating, what are some differences about me? And without hesitation, my wife knows me so well. She just said like six, seven, eight, nine, ten different things about me that have changed over the years. She said, well, first of all, your clothes have changed your style, your fashion. And then she said, thank God for that, because, man, back then when I first met you, your clothes were nasty. Like, literally, that's the word she used. She said, I'll tell you what words to use to describe my fashion. Nasty, gross, tragic, <laughs> and worst of all, major turnoff. And that's what she said. I know, it's sad, it's sad. It, it was a minor miracle that somehow we still ended up together, if that's how bad I was. But she said, it's changed. You've definitely improved. Not the best, but you've improved. I said, okay, fair enough. Well, what else? How else have I changed? She said, well, you, you have less hair. Uh, a lot less hair, more wrinkles. Uh, you, you shower more often. You take better care of your skin. You're more social. You're generally more energetic. You're more confident. And then she said, oh, and here's a big one. You dance now. Because, yeah, back then you would like never dance. It was like forbidden in your life. It was probably literally the least favorite thing in your life to do was dance. And now look at you. You're like line dancing. You're taking dancing lessons. You're like hogging the TV, watching tutorials on YouTube in the living room. You're inviting other people to come over to dance. And that's like a major difference. And so it's true. As I had this conversation with my wife, it was evidence that things change. People change, I change, relationships change, because I'm not the only one who's changed. My wife, Christina, has changed. We've changed together. Our relationship now in 2022 is much different than when we first started all those years ago. I mean, for example, our communication is different. I mean, verbally, certainly, the way we talk to each other is a little bit different. But even in written form, that's changed because we don't write <laughs> to each other. But back then, we did. We would exchange letters, uh, notes, emails, birthdays, and Christmases. We would always write cards to one another, but then the years went by, and we just stopped doing that. That's a difference in our lives now. In fact, I wanted to change that this year. So for Christmas this year, I said, you know what, well, let's go throw back to the olden days when our love was hot. And I decided I was going to write her a Christmas card this year. So on Christmas, I gave her a card. Now, for all the wives out there, this wasn't the only thing I got her, Okay. I also got her a gift as well. But on top of the gift, I gave her this card. And it was kind of funny because like on Christmas morning or on Christmas Day when I gave her the card, she received it and said, okay, now who am I supposed to give this to? And I was like, for you? What are you talking about? It's like, that's strange for me because that's how long it's been since we've exchanged cards. It used to be a regular part of our relationship, but we just don't do that anymore. Our text messages are certainly different. 
I'm sure some of yours are too, but when we first started dating, we would text all the time. Texts would just be flying in, like paragraphs, paragraphs. They would come in left and right. We would stay up texting all night. I did that on purpose, by the way. <laughs> we would text serious things, funny things, romantic things, random things. We were just always texting. But nowadays, we don't text that much. Now, granted, we live together, so there's not as much of a need to do that because that'd be weird if we're texting each other when we're both in the kitchen. But I'm not just talking about the quantity, like the number of texts. It's also the quality. There's just a different feel to it, you know? If I gave you my phone from back then and you read through our conversations, you'd be like, oh, wow, I can totally tell this is a conversation between two lovebirds. But now if I gave you my phone and you read through our texts and saw our conversations, you'd be like, oh, this is a conversation between two robots. There's like no emotion. There's no feeling there, right? And so again, I wanted to, to change things a little bit this year. I want to do a little something different. So like maybe a few days ago or a couple of days ago, I actually sent my wife this really random text. I just wanted to regain that love and emotion and passion. So this is the text that I sent to my wife. If you can put that picture up there. Um, little gif or however you like to pronounce it. We got it? No, not that one. It should be one of a, of a fox. <laughs> yes, this one. Isn't that sweet? So romantic. So I texted her this picture, right? And about five or ten seconds later, my wife responded. And if we have it, this is what she responded back to me. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly the response I was looking for. Get away, get away, get away. But it just goes to show, right, things have kind of changed. You know, a little sad if you ask me. It's kind of sad. But you know what? It's okay because it's not just us. I'm sure for a lot of boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, over time things just kind of change. We see this, a, a loss of romance, a, a loss of spark in relationships. Maybe you even see this in random people's lives, like when you go to a restaurant or something. And a couple walks in, and maybe a, a man and a woman, they sit down at the table, and what do they do? They get their phones out. And if you watch, like, their entire meal, you might notice that a, a couple has their phone out, and they might be on their phones, like, the entire meal to the point where they don't even say one word to one another. And you look at that, and you go, man, that's not right. You guys should be talking to each other. Because certainly there was once a, a point in time in your life, in your relationship, where you guys were always talking. You couldn't wait to sit down and have a meal together. Now you care much more about what's going on in this device than you do about what's going on in the heart or in the life of the person sitting right in front of you. And indeed, this is sad. But I think what's more sad than this is that this exact situation happens not only in our relationships with each other, with our significant others, with our husbands and wives, but sometimes it also happens in our relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about that God changes. Because we saw in that video, right? God does not change. And the scriptures declare to us that his love endures for how long? Forever. Amen. His grace never fades. So it's not that God changes, but sometimes it's us. Because when it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes our love fades. Sometimes our passion for him can begin to dissipate. That light that once shined bright for Jesus begins to grow dimmer and dimmer. The fire that was burning and raging, it gets cold. 
Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life. Maybe there was once a time when you were on fire for Jesus. There was once a time when you were truly connected to him and had a deep relationship. So you read the Bible like every day. Not because you had to or someone forced you to. You just wanted to know what God's word had in store for you that day. And every time you read it, it felt like he would speak to you. There was some truth that would pierce your heart. Maybe at one point you had just a vibrant, strong prayer life. You would pray daily, often, all throughout the day, just having a running dialogue and conversation with God because you needed him. You were desperate for him. You just wanted to know what he had to say for you. You were connected to him. Maybe you regularly shared your faith with other people, coworkers, neighbors, family, friends. It didn't matter. Jesus was the most important thing to you, so you couldn't help but just to share what was going on in your life to invite people out to church. You were passionate about that. Maybe you were obedient to his word. You were disciplined. You were virtuous. You were godly. You did whatever you could to do what the Bible said to do, not because you were legalistic and you were afraid of going to hell or something like that. No, it's because you loved God and you just genuinely wanted to please him in your life. But then the days go by. The weeks, the months, the years, maybe for some people, the decades go by. And now you look at your life, you're not really reading the Bible that much. You pray, but... Not as often. Sometimes you'll go an entire day, and excluding breakfast, lunch, dinner, you probably didn't pray all day for some of you. You'd rather not talk about your faith. It's kind of a hassle. You just don't want to bring those things up, and you're certainly not as disciplined and as obedient as you used to be. And when this happens, you look at your relationship with God, and you realize it's not that dissimilar from that couple at the restaurant who sits down and they're right in front of each other, but they'd rather look at their phones. There's just no passion, no zeal, no fervor, perhaps no love. And so the question is, when this happens, what can we do about it? When we sense this loss of love in our hearts for God, what can we do to change that? What can we do to restore, to renew, to refresh our relationship with him? Well, I want to find the answer to that question today. And I want to do so by looking at Scripture. Because we're going to turn to a passage in the Bible this morning where we see a church who was going through that exact same situation. It was a church that existed in the first century times in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, in a city called Ephesus. And the Ephesians, or the church at Ephesus, was a group of believers who started off just mad on fire for God. They loved him so much. They were doing so well. But as time goes on, things change, and they lose their love for him. And as Jesus sees what's going on in the lives and in the situations of this church, he sends a special prophetic message to these people, and he calls them out on it. He says, I know what's happening in your heart. And then he instructs them what to do about it. And as he does that, he also instructs us what we can do about it as well. So let's turn to this passage together, and let's see what Jesus has in store for us. Today we're in the book of Revelation. And we're in chapter number two. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter number two. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, that's totally okay. We'll have the verses up on the screens to our side. So Revelation today, we're in chapter number two. And we're reading the words of Jesus Christ as written through the Apostle John. And these are words given to this church, the church in Ephesus. And this is what Jesus says. Verse number two. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. Amen. So here Jesus is speaking to this church, 
And he's describing what this church is like. And he gives you three descriptions, three things that happen in these two verses. So what is Ephesus like, or at least the church in Ephesus? Well, from here, they're pretty dang awesome. They're doing pretty well. And like I said, there's three things that show us that. Number one, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, which means this is a church that's doing stuff. They have deeds. They have work. They're not an apathetic church that's all talk but no action. No, they're living out their faith, serving him, going on missions, being generous, whatever God needs them to do, they were doing. They were a church of deeds. And then number two, Jesus goes on. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You cannot tolerate wickedness. Instead, when wicked people come in, you test them, those who claim to be the apostles. And you have found that they are not. What does that mean? It means they were wicked people who would come in pretending to be apostles or pretending to be teachers of God, but they really weren't. They were trying to lead people astray. But the church at Ephesus, they could detect this. They knew that. They were able to test that they were not of God, which means what? They knew their Bibles. It means they knew Scripture. It was a Bible-believing, Bible-studying, Bible-teaching church, and they were able to apply that Scripture's. And then Jesus goes on and says, not only that, but you have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary, which means they were faithful. They pushed on even in spite of opposition, even in spite of persecution, even in spite of tribulations. They did not lose their faith in him. And as we look at all these three, three things and put them together, this just is an amazing church, man. This is a fire church, right? They're like one big giant fire emoji, like just, oh, awesome persevering, working hard, enduring, zealous, righteous, faithful, genuine, authentic. I mean, this is the kind of church that we should all want to be, right? But then something happens. Something happens because, like I said, as the days go on, they lose something. And that's what Jesus says next in verse number four. Let's go to that next verse. I've seen your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, all these things. But in verse four, yet... I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Let me read that one more time. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And that's a very serious and powerful charge here that Jesus is bringing to these people. He said, I know what you were like days ago, but you have forsaken me. Now, that word there, forsake, is a strong word. It's a word that literally means to abandon, to neglect, to throw away, to leave behind. It's like what my son does after he gets sick of playing with a toy. He got so many awesome toys from you guys from Christmas, and as soon as the stickers start to peel or a wheel falls off or something breaks off because he probably broke it off, he gets sick of it, throws it away, ends up in a corner of a basket somewhere, never to be played with again. And Jesus uses that same word to describe how he's being treated by the people at this church. Instead of being treated like the king of the universe, like the savior of their lives, I'm being thrown to the corner like an unwanted toy. And now here we have this once mighty and passionate and fiery church. I mean, there's still a church. They're still meeting. They're still gathering. Presumably, they're still worshiping and listening to sermons doing things that church people do, but apparently they're just going through the motions. They're just kind of sleepwalking through their faith, just kind of doing the actions, but devoid of passion and certainly devoid of love because Jesus says, you have forsaken 
your first love. And Jesus says to them, I don't want your actions by themselves. I don't want you to go through the motions of your spiritual life. I don't want you to just be sleepwalking. I want your heart. I want your love. And again, our question here, is Jesus perhaps speaking to us in a certain way as well? Are there some of us here that maybe we're kind of sleepwalking spiritually? Are there some of us maybe we're just kind of going through the motions? Yeah, we're here. We're tuning in. We're watching. But where's our heart? Has it wandered? Has our love grown cold? Has it fizzled? And again, if so, what can we do about that? Well, that's what we see next. Because not only does Jesus challenge this church, not only does he point out the reality of what's going on, but he also instructs them. In his love, he also tells them what they need to do next. He shows them what steps he wants them to take. He tells them three things, three steps, three solutions to this problem of a dwindling love, of a fire that's growing cold, three things that he wants the church at Ephesus to do. And we see that in verse number five, three things. And here's the first one. We see it in the very first part of that verse. What's the first thing that they are to do as a reaction or as a response to this forsaken love? Number one, it says in verse five, remember, remember the height from which you have fallen. And we'll pause right there. That's the first thing he says, remember. Now, this concept of remembering is a very biblical concept. It happens all the time in scriptures. God is constantly telling his people to remember things and constantly giving them things to do so that they don't forget. Festivals, feasts, the building of altars, the building of buildings, wearing certain clothing, wearing things literally like on their foreheads. Communion is probably the best example of that, which we'll be doing later on today. But God knows. God knows that we are forgetful people that need to be reminded. I know I'm a forgetful person. You know, my son Dawson is in uh, daycare. And a couple weeks ago, it was like Christmas time, right? So my wife, uh, she wanted to get Dawson's daycare teacher gifts. So she bought like this cake for Christmas and got them these gifts. And the day before or the night before his last day of school prior to Christmas break or winter break, she said to me, you know, before you take Dawson to school tomorrow, Make sure that you take the cake and the gifts to the school because it's a cake, okay? If you forget, we can't take it back after winter break, okay? And I don't want to give them a gift after Christmas, so make sure that you bring the gifts. I said, yeah, sure, whatever. Of course. I was doing something. I don't know. It's probably line dance practicing. I don't know. But she said, don't forget. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think she said this like probably like at least three times, like don't forget. So I said, yeah, 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 I'm not going to forget. Come on. So next morning, wake up, wake up my son, say hi to him, you know, play with him a little bit, change his diaper, change his clothes, put on his shoes, brush his teeth, take him downstairs, take a little selfie outside because we do that every morning. We take a little father-son selfie before I, you know, put him in the car. And I go to the back seat, I put him in the car, shut the door. But you know what I didn't put in the car? Yeah, <laughs> you guys know me too well. I didn't put in the cake and the gifts. Like, I just completely forgot. That is, until I walked around into my front seat of my car, and then I looked at my steering wheel, and my wife had actually left me a note. Here's a picture of that note. <laughs> Teacher gifts plus cake. Do not forget. Underlined in red letters. I have a wonderful wife, don't I? 
Yeah, you know, she knows me too well. She knows me too well. She knew I would forget, so she left me this reminder. And God knows us too well. He knows that we need to be reminded. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. Remember. Remember. Now here's the question. Remember what? Well, he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. So what he's talking about there is remember the high of what it was like to be in a relationship with me. Remember that high point of when we were connected, of when you had not forsaken me, when we were here together. Remember. Remember the strength that you would get when you would read my word each week, when that truth would hit your heart. Remember how great that was. Remember the peace that I would give to you when you would pray and I would take away whatever anxiety that you had in your life, and it would just go away because you knew you could put your trust and faith in me. Remember that. Remember that sense of awe that would come into your heart when my Holy Spirit would just, would just work in you during praise time or worship time, and you knew the truth that I was really there for you. Remember that sense of love that you experienced when you knew that you were freed and forgiven because my grace came upon you and you were brought to your knees and you gave your life to me and said you would follow me forever. Remember that, Jesus says. And that's the first thing. That's the first step that Jesus gives, the first instruction to the church at Ephesus. Remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And then he goes on. And he says there's a second thing that you ought to do, a second step, a second instruction. That is the very next word of that verse. So remember, number one, the height from which you have fallen. And then number two, repent. Repent. Now what does that mean to repent? Well, it's definitely a biblical word. It's definitely a church word. It's one we've, we've heard in many contexts throughout our lives if you've been to church for any number of years. But here's a quick reminder. The word repent isn't a word of emotion. It's not talking about a way to feel. It's a word of action. It's telling us what to do. And what it's telling us to do is to turn away or turn around. A better translation, perhaps, of the word repent is to change course. So it's kind of like what you do if you realize you're going the wrong way on the freeway. Like, not wrong way as in into the cars, but like the wrong direction, north or south. Like, you ever done that before? You ever, like, you meant to go four or five north, but then you actually went on south? Like, what do you do when that happens? You don't just sit there driving and feel stupid. Like, oh, I feel stupid. I feel bad. It's not an emotion, right? What you do is you get off the freeway and you go back the way you need to go. And that's exactly what the concept of repentance is. When you know you're going in the wrong direction of your life, it means to take an action to do something to change course to go back the other way. So maybe emotion might be a part of that. You might feel sorrow or something like that along the way. But what's more important is that you take a step to turn around. And so our question here today then is, well, what do you need to repent from today to restore your relationship with God? What is there in your life that you need to change the direction away from because you realize that's taking you away from spirituality and from a closeness with Jesus? Well, here's one. How about, how about video games? Now, I'm serious. Video games. And some of you guys who are parents are like, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to take my kids out of Pastor Jason's kid venture and bring him in, have him listen to the rest of the sermon. I like that. You know, I heard someone say they need to repent from video games, but here's the funny thing. The person who said that wasn't a kid. was an adult, very much an adult. In his 30s, three kids, one of my friends, he's a pastor. And I invited him to speak at a retreat, and, and he was speaking. He said, I need to repent from a video game. And he actually brought up, you know, like a, the CD, like a you know, PlayStation or Xbox game or whatever it is. 
I need to repent from this video game. I was trying to see what game it is. Like, what kind of like pornographic game is he talking about that he needs to repent from? But it was not like some bad game. It was Madden. You guys know Madden, right? John Madden. It's like a football game. Very wholesome. Like, I would let my kid play, play Madden. I was like, why do you need to, to repent from Madden? That's like perfectly good. Football is fine. Like, I love football, right? Heck, 2002 Jericho Road Church. Fantasy football champion right here, right? There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with football. But then David, my friend, went on to explain what he meant by that. He said, you know, I'm a busy guy with the three kids and pastoring full time. But I realized, like, I have very little free time. And, um, you know, as I'm pastoring full time and my, my schedule is getting busier and busier, I'm starting to just fill whatever free time I have with this game. Like, that's all I do. Like late at night, you know, before I go to bed and we put the kids down, I'm like playing the game. Throughout the week, whenever I have free time, I'm playing this game. Uh, Even when I am busy, I'm playing this game. And there's nothing wrong with the game, but just the way it's become a priority in his life is disproportionate to the way that he wants to normally use his life, which is to pray a little more, to do more devotional stuff, to be more available for his family, to do more healthier things that will help him to grow. And so for him, because he recognized that even though the game's not bad, the way the game is really taking over too much of his life, that has become bad. So he said, I need to repent from this. So in front of, you know, the church, he, he broke that CD in half. Like shards went flying everywhere. Now, I'm not saying you guys need to break stuff, okay? I'm not a proponent of violence, right? And there's probably better ways to handle it, like selling it on OfferUp and donating the money, money to somewhere, or even giving it away. So if you guys need to repent from, like, Lakers tickets, I will gladly help in that regard, or if there's anything of value you need help with. But in seriousness, you know, I I think we don't need to necessarily break and destroy things, but I think the principle is very valuable for us. If there is something in our life, even if per se or in and of itself it's not some kind of inherently evil or bad thing, if too much of it or the way that it's consuming our life takes us away from God, then perhaps that is something that we need to repent of or repent from. Maybe social media for some of us the amount of time that we spend on it, the amount of energy and emotions that we spend on either on our own or looking at others. I hate to say this to my guys, but hey, maybe it might be anime. And we talked about this last week in our college group. Could be sports for some of us. For others, it could be, I don't know, it could be a job. Now, I'm not saying to quit your jobs, right, and become a pastor or something. I mean, being a pastor is great, but we don't need everyone to be a pastor, I mean, we need other jobs, too. We need architects, dentists, lawyers, mechanics. We need dance instructors, because then I wouldn't be able to learn. Like, we need people to do these things. So I'm not saying quit your job and be poor. But I'm just saying maybe for some of us, there are aspects of our jobs or attitude towards our jobs that we sincerely need to change because that's affecting our faith or our relationship with God. Maybe it's an obsession with financial security that's causing you to lose your faith, your trust. Because you're working, 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 putting your trust in yourself. Maybe it's an obsession with career advancement that's causing your attitude to be negative. Maybe it's causing you to be ruthless, unkind, uncaring, ungodly. Maybe it's the amount of work that you do which is unnecessarily unhealthy for you. And like my friend David, it's just taking too much of your time to the point where you're not able to dedicate those things to other more healthier aspects of your life or more important aspects of your life. Whatever it may be, maybe there are things about your job that you need to repent from. 
Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship, pornography, materialism, whatever it is. If there is anything in your life, Jesus says, number two, repent, turn away, turn around, change course. And then number three, one final thing for us today. After you remember, after you repent, there's one last thing I want you to do, and it says there in verse 5, and do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first, or to keep it nice and clean, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Do the things you did at first. And what he's talking about there is go back to those things that you did when we were close, when you had a fire for me, when tho- if those things helped you in your spiritual life, if those things helped you draw nearer to me, go back and do those things. And so again, the question is, well, what is that for you in your life? Maybe for some of you it was like, um, I don't know, joining a small group. Maybe the healthiest that you've ever been spiritually was when you were involved in a small group because at that time you just had a regular community with people that would encourage you, that would keep you accountable, and you just sensed that God would speak to you through the words that they spoke. Well, if that's the case, if you've removed yourself from a small group, then do the things you did at first. Repeat. Go back. Maybe for others of you, it's like retreat. You know, Retreat was a very valuable experience for you either a big one at a church, maybe an individual retreat, whatever it may be, just this act of getting away from the busyness of the world and the chaos of, of what's going on in your life and just going somewhere else to focus on Jesus, maybe that was something that helped you reorient your mind and your heart back to Jesus to give you a fresh perspective so that when you came back, you'd be just really connected to him. Then do that again. Find a time to retreat. Find a time to get away. Maybe it's prayer journaling, taking notes during sermons, doing a Bible reading plan. Maybe it's listening to more Christian music in the car because as you did did that on the way to work, you just would be in a better place mentally. Maybe it was praying at a specific time, like at your computer or your emails, just that prayer time was something that was really you. Whatever. Here's another one. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's just going to church, you know? I know this is something that's been harder and harder for people to do, to physically come out to church. But there was a time when you went to church that just having the regular fellowship of people around you, worshiping corporately, hearing sermons, being around, serving, volunteering, that's what helped your spiritual life. That's what helped you draw the most connected with Jesus, and now you've stopped. Now hear me out on this for just a moment, because look, I understand we're in 2022, okay? And I'm very well aware that there is this thing called the coronavirus and the Omicron variant. And so look, for some people, it's just not possible for you to come. You're at risk, you're sick, maybe you're pregnant, maybe you have a young baby. And so in cases like this or in situations like this where it's just really not wise for you to come, I'm just grateful that God has given us the technology that we can do virtual services. But even for you, there may come a day when all of this fades and you're still not attending. Maybe there may be some of us who are tuning in online, and you know what? You haven't come for a while, and it's not because of any of these reasons, but if we're being really honest, it's just because you've grown comfortable. It's nice to have our Sundays free. It's nice to not have to drive out. It's nice to be comfortable, and you're kind of apathetic about going to church. Really, if I use a stronger word, it's just because you've grown lazy. 
And if this is the case, perhaps Jesus is beckoning you to awaken from your spiritual slumber. Perhaps Jesus is challenging you to repent from your comfort and inactivity. Is this the case? Well, that's the instructions that he gives to us. Remember, repent, and repeat. You know, I want to close with this. As we reflect upon these things, you know, I realize we're all in different places in our spiritual lives. You know, I was thinking about this. I said, you know, there might be some of us here in this room where this message just doesn't really mean all that much to me because I'm just in a good place spiritually. I am in a good, close relationship with God. I haven't faded. I haven't fizzled. And you know, if that's you, God bless you. Amen. Praise the Lord. And I truly, sincerely, I pray that God's presence remains in your life for the rest of your days going forward. I really do. I hope that for everybody. But the reality is, look, there's probably some people here where that's not the case, and you might be like the church at Ephesus. You've kind of wandered. You've kind of grown cold. That fire's barely alive. If not, it's blown out. And when that happens, I know that there can be this sense of guilt, right? We feel bad, a sense of sorrow, a sense of shame. There might even be this sense of, like, unworthiness. Like, I'm not worthy to come back to God. I've just ignored him so many times. Like, he's called me to repent. I knew that. I knew he was calling me to do that. And I just ignored it because, like, my life was more important. Like, what I was doing, that was more important to me. And sometimes we have this guilt that might be a hindrance. But I just want to give you one reminder here this morning. And that reminder is that Jesus Christ came into this world not to condemn or to accuse Jesus Christ came into this world not to show you or make you feel guilty or sorrowful. He came to take those things away. And his love endures forever. And it doesn't matter, like, how far you've wandered. Like, it doesn't matter how far you've gone or for how long you've gone. He's waiting today to receive you back. Because you know that story of the prodigal son that went off and squandered the father's riches? the father was waiting and when he saw him from a distance the father ran ran to embrace his son to welcome him back into his loving arms the one reminder i give to us here today is jesus cannot wait to wrap his arms around you to shower you with his love and there's no greater proof of that than the cross because he laid down his life so that you could have life eternal so that you could have a relationship with him so you could have joy in your life. And so at this time, I want to do something together. I want us to do step one, which is remember. And I want us to enter into a time of communion together as a church. So if you're a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to take one of these communion kits here. They should either be in the chair in front of you or if you're in the front row, which because Pastor Sam's not here, no one's in the front row. It'll be under your seat. But to take one of these communion kits... I just want to prepare your heart for communion. You know, we're going to do it a little bit differently here today. I will lead you through this, and we'll take this together. And if you are not a Christian, or you do not have faith, or you're kind of uncertain of your faith, then please feel no pressure whatsoever to do this. You can let this time pass you by. But if you are a believer, let's do this together. Let me do the bread for us first. So the night before that Jesus was crucified, he shared a special meal with his friends. And it was at this meal that Jesus got a loaf of bread, and then he broke it, and he passed it around. And then he said to his disciples, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat of it, 
do so in remembrance of me. Jericho Road Church, we believe that this bread is a symbol of Jesus' body broken for our sins. So at this time, let's go ahead and eat this bread together and do so in remembrance of him. Then after the bread, Jesus poured a glass of wine. And as he poured this wine, he distributed it to his disciples, and he said to them, this wine is my blood, poured out for you to free you of your sins. Every time you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Jericho Road Church, we believe that this is a symbol of Jesus' blood that frees us from our sins at this time. Let's take it together, and let's do so in remembrance of him. pray. Father God, we thank you so much just for this act of communion, which is a symbol of your amazing love for us. And I pray, Lord God, today that it is that love which compels us in our lives to make a change, to make a difference, that we no longer go through the actions or activities mindlessly or numbly, but Lord, that your spirit would really drive us to give our lives fully to you because, Lord, you deserve it. Your love demands it. And so, Father, we just declare your name today. We just praise you. We worship you. We say thank you for being a God who never changes, being a God who's full of grace. And would it be that grace that is the power of our lives? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.